So let me just uh, say for a minute, what would it be like if uh, you walked out of here without fear? And for some of you, you're like, that's not possible. I've been living in fear my whole life. For some of you, you think, I don't have any fear, but you do. We all struggle with fear. And it comes in lots of different ways, and it comes from in different forms. And one of the things that Nehemiah had to walk the Jews through was building, continue to build, even in the face of fear. And uh, I, have a, I have a book in my office called fear, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Well, this isn't even about that. This is something even more powerful than that. So if you weren't here the last few weeks, Nehemiah is a Jewish guy living uh, far away from his homeland, which is in Jerusalem. And um, Israel had existed, and then they turned back on God. So God let him get uh, um, conquered by other nations. And um, the other nations tore down the walls of Jerusalem, uh, which is kind of the symbolic center of, um, of not only Jewish faith, uh, but eventually the Christian faith in some ways and um, was a reminder of God's plan to reconnect with humankind. And the walls are torn down, so um, after many, many, many years and some previous attempts, word comes to Nehemiah, uh, who is far away, probably never been to Jerusalem, that the, the religious center of, of the Jews has been torn down and the people are being uh, kind of uh, abused by all the local people groups. And he asked the king, if he can go back and fix it. And the king miraculously says yes and takes some the materials with you to get it done. And so he goes back and he begins um, rebuilding the walls. By the way, I could do the whole Bible in six minutes if you're wondering. But um, so that's kind of the beginning of the story of Nehemiah. And uh, so what we pick it up is they've started rebuilding the walls. And as always happens, when you go to make a change, we're kind of paralleling any kind of change that God wants us to partner with him on uh, to what they were doing there. And anytime you begin to make change in your life, whether it's developing your own character, building a stronger marriage, growing a stronger family, <coughs> excuse me, um, there's always opposition and fear becomes a part of the problem. And so we pick it up today in chapter four of Nehemiah. And in chapter four, it's all about the opposition, the external opposition that kind of is, is intended to trigger fear within them. And so in chapter four, verse one, we begin with a guy named Sanballat. Now, Sanballat is just a nasty guy. He's in a bad mood because he's named, his parents named him Sanballat. I'd be in a bad mood too. And so Sanballat is, um, he's kind of a local thug, okay? So you've got the, the major, you've got the king um, and uh and, but but locally, the king's far away. So locally, you got this kind of local guy that kind of is a thug. He's kind of a local bully, okay, regional kind of bully kind of guy. And um, and so they overrun Jerusalem whenever they want something or just want to beat up on the people or whatever. And so it's kind of not a good situation for the, the Jews there. And so we find Sanballat now not happy about this. So here's where it starts. In um, in Nehemiah chapter 4, if you have a Bible, you could turn there, open an app, or follow along on screens. When Sanballat heard that we were um, rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, uh, what are they building? If even a fox could climb on it, he would break it down, uh, break down their walls of stone. So he begins with ridicule. Sometimes people laughing at us hurts more than them hitting us, right? We're all fear of people. We are in fear of people laughing at us. Otherwise, you wouldn't have worn what you wore today. Some of you still missed. Just kidding. Just, just see if you're listening. Um, 
And so this, this, this idea of ridicule kind of caused us to be fearful. And so Sanballat starts a psychological warfare to try to instill fear in the Jews as they're rebuilding these walls. And he starts just making fun of them. Now, uh, there's some interesting things in the way he made fun of them. Uh, by the way, I heard, uh, I've read a quote one time. It said that ridicule is the language of the devil. It's just a way to undermine our confidence, kind of make us stop and question what we're doing, what we're trying to achieve here. And so when he begins with, he says, what are those feeble Jews doing? Now, the Jews, uh, to be honest, feeble, it doesn't, well, I don't know. Uh, but to the Jews, this is very realistic because the word feeble, the word used in the Hebrew for feeble means withered and miserable. And the picture is of a people group that have been so beaten down for so long that they, they're just kind of shriveled up. Their spirit is kind of shriveled up. Their hopes and dreams have been dashed. They're kind of been taken advantage of so long, they just really are beaten down. And so when he calls them feeble, he's not, not lying. They are. They are feeble, but he misunderstands something because their hope and what is going to cause this whole miraculous rebuilding of the wall to happen in only 52 days, by the way, is not in themselves, but in their belief in God. And so he misunderstands what they're about. And it is, it is a serious mistake because when uh, he kind of makes fun of them, he goes on to say something else. So he says, he says this. He says, um, will they restore their wall? Like, how are they going to do this? They, they, don't, they can't do this. They, they don't know how to do this. But what he doesn't understand is that the reason the people of Israel are in the condition they're in is not because of some lack of ability or something. It's because that God allowed them to be punished because they turned their backs on God. God had chosen them as his people, turned his back, took his hand of blessing off of them. They received the consequence of their actions. Now, what, what Sanballat doesn't understand is God is about to put his hand of blessing back on them. And what people who look at us and might ridicule us for taking action that would help us grow, they might make fun of us, they don't understand God's hand of blessing, that God will honor that kind of thing. You say, well, uh, I'm not building a wall. Was that? Yeah, but you might, be, you might be trying to build a better life, a different kind of life. So for example, I don't drink alcohol. If you've ever seen me drink iced tea, you know I shouldn't be drinking alcohol because I just drink one after the other and that's probably what I would do if I did that. So I've just chosen not to. I, I just don't think it's a healthy thing for me and, and it's not something I do. And over the years, it's been so interesting and it's not non-church people that give me grief. Like, oh, you're a pastor, you don't drink. That kind of makes sense. It's church people who think they know better. Oh, you're, you're living under legalism. No, I'm living under wisdom because I know how much I eat and I know how much I drink and I don't eat alcohol. Believe me, I just don't. And yet I still kind of get there. Well, you know what? I really don't care what you say because God is blessing me because I'm trying to build a life that's different, right? And so I'm okay with that. Saying, okay, that's it. Well, what about, I know, guys, I've actually heard this conversation happen. Young men who've said, you know, I cut off my social media, parts of it or all of it, different times. I've heard different conversations. Why would you do that? Why do you need this? Because Facebook wasn't causing me to think about the kinds of things that made me more like Jesus. Well, that's just ridiculous. Is it? Because I know what I'm building. I'm building a character that believes in God, trusts God. I want to be more like Jesus, not like the people I'm reading about. I'm not taking a shot at Facebook or anything. I'm just saying that sometimes we take actions in our life in order to build something that we're partnering with God on, whether it's our character, our marriage, our family, whatever it is. Another thing, I don't, I, I'm not alone with women, ever. I don't ride in the car with a woman alone. 
I don't meet with women alone unless my office door is open and there are people right there. I don't do that. You say, well, that's just ridiculous. Maybe, but I'm building a great marriage. And God and I are partner on building a great marriage, and I don't want anybody ever to think anything else is happening. So that's kind of one of my deals. You're saying, well, you are just, you are just uptight. I'm not uptight at all. I'm just going somewhere. I think we live in a world that, that really does like to ridicule people who have convictions and have value. And I think that if we are to build the kind of lives, kind of marriages, families that God wants us to, we're going to have to ignore some of the, the conventional wisdom around us and just trust God in this deal. So he goes on and he says, these feeble Jews, and so he's kind of taking a shot at them because, and then he says, what are they going to restore their walls? He doesn't understand that God is the one who's going to do this miraculous thing through them. It's not just them alone. And then he says, and this is where he crosses the line. This is where he does something really dumb. He says, will they offer sacrifices? Now, you don't know what that means. But what that means is that, that was a part of Old Testament worship. And what he's saying, oh, do you think, you think your worship is going to get you there? You think your God? Now, his thinking is they don't have a God or their God is no good because they're in a mess. And he kind of makes fun of Jehovah, God. He goes, are they going to worship? Are they gonna, is there sacrifice? Your God's a joke. Now, this comes back in a minute because it's important because this offends Nehemiah. All the other stuff didn't really offend Nehemiah. This offends Nehemiah, and we'll see that in a moment. So he's making fun of God, Jehovah, which is the whole point of rebuilding the walls. It's not just to make the people feel comfortable. It's actually, in the grand scheme of things, a part of God's grand narrative, which ends up with Jesus walking through Jerusalem and dying for our sins. So it's a part of this grand narrative. Nehemiah didn't understand the whole thing, I'm sure, but he knew it was a part of God's trying to reconcile humanity to himself. And so he, he says, will they offer sacrifice? And will they finish in a day? Well, the wall had been tried. They tried to rebuild the wall before and it failed. So now he's, he's questioning their tenacity. He's just planting doubt and, and, and stuff in them. And then he says, and then even, now this part is just ridiculous. So here's where I, I if I were to read into this thing, I would read that Sanballat is, uh, is actually not as brave as he thinks and not sure of himself as he thinks. Because this last set of kind of ridicule is just doesn't make any sense to me. And so he may be a little more worried about the Jews being able to protect themselves and becoming a power in the region than he's letting on. Because he says this, here's his insult. He says this, can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Bring stones back to life? What? It wasn't the stones that burned, it was the gates that were burned and made out of wood. Remember the king gave them wood to build new gates. So what's he even talking about here? I, I don't even know. The stones were not burned. Stones are stones, right? Put them back up. They're, they're good again, right? Isn't that kind of... So he says, it's just kind of reaching here. And then, and then his little buddy, he's kind of like Gilligan. <laughs> it's his little buddy. I always see most despots running around with a little guy going, yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, 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 right? Well, his, his guy's name is Tobiah. Here's what he says. He says, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, little buddy, says, what are they, what are they building? Even a, even a fox climbing up on it would, would break down their walls of stone. <laughs> I don't know, that's how it, it's, what it, it's the original. Anyway. <laughs> but here is, what is, here is what is interesting in this deal, is that there is an instinct that kicks in when people ridicule us. At least for me. Maybe you're different. Maybe you, it doesn't bother you. But when people, I feel like they're ridiculing me, I want to I, I respond. A number of years ago, we were building a project here at the church. We needed a loan for it. Many years ago. We needed a loan for it, and so we, we sent out to several banks to see if we get a loan, 
And the bank that we thought would be most favorable to us, um, they, they call and they want to come meet with me. And I'm, great, let's meet. So the, our CFO and myself and, and uh, sit down and, with them. And, and I'm thinking he's going to just lay out the terms of the loan and how they're going to do it and so on. And he proceeds to not only tell me they're not giving me a loan, but that I have, I have absolutely no chance of getting a loan and that I should not get a loan and that this was ridiculous, that I would even, even apply for a loan, basically. And he not only, I'm thinking, well, you could have just sent a no over the mail or phone. Or, you know, you, could have, you didn't have to show up and insult me this, this way. And so as he's talking, I find myself getting righteous, righteous indignation. Okay, it wasn't all that righteous, but I was indignant. I was, I was ticked off. And I remember looking at this guy and letting him do a spiel. And he just sat there, very satisfied that he delivered this message in person for whatever reason. I don't know what his problem was. I said, really? I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. As you're walking to your car in the parking lot, I'm going to go to my desk and I'm going to sign the loan offer that I have there already. One of a couple that we have. But I think that's the best one. Thanks for your input. <laughs> Get out of here. Now, did I want to respond to him? Yes. I, and I'm not sure I've worked my way through it yet, as you can tell. But, um, <laughs> but I, in that moment, I had to realize, this guy doesn't think we can do it. It's been many years. We did it. We've done it. it was, we, we had spent months looking at spreadsheets, up, down, left, right. We knew every potential possibility in this deal. And we knew God was calling us to do it. So you, Mr. Banker, are telling me I shouldn't do what God called me to do? I got news for you. And that's exactly how Nehemiah responded. He didn't get involved in an argument. He didn't get involved in anything. You know what he did is he prayed. We find this amazing response Nehemiah does every time opposition comes. He prays. Well, what good does that do? <laughs> well, they weren't going to build this wall on their own. It was going to be the power of God. It was miraculous how it built. Why not pray first before we respond, react, follow the guy to the parking lot and share what you're thinking with him in that case? So here's what happens with Nehemiah in, in, in verse 4. It says this, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Now, he prays a prayer that I've often wanted to pray, but I don't think as Christians we're allowed to. And I'll explain the difference in a moment. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads, kind of harsh. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity, really harsh. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. <laughs> have you ever wanted to pray that <laughs> on a freeway? But anyway, um, <laughs> here's what's interesting, though. He wasn't personally insulted. It wasn't about his ego. What had happened was this guy had taken on God. Remember that little thing he did earlier? Your God's a joke kind of deal? This guy, and so when God's chosen people were trying to restore this city that was so, so special in, in God's redemptive plan, and this guy opposed it, it wasn't his opposition to Nehemiah that was the problem. It was his blasphemy toward God. And he prayed this prayer because this guy had blasphemed God, because this guy had, had, had taken that attitude toward God. It wasn't about his own ego. And so when we pray, the first thing that he does, again and again, Nehemiah prayed. When we pray and we have been ridiculed, don't pray about your ego. God, they really, they're jerks. God, Lord, I want your will. So here's what I would suggest we do in the New Testament where it says, love your enemies. Pray for them. The hardest thing I have to do is pray for somebody I'm mad at. It's awful for about the first three sentences because I want to pray for them that they will be taken captive. 
And yet, if I don't pray for them, God is not free to lead me and guide me and grow me. So I pray, God, have your will in their life. Whatever it takes. If they're wrong on something, help them come to a place where they got to realize that. If they need to do it, help them. And help me not to carry the bitterness and the anger. Because when somebody ridicules you, those words sting. Yeah, they sting. But they don't really bring harm unless you let them in, in and you meditate on them. Unless you let them in to poison your spiritual system, they can't really do you. They're just words. They don't, Nehemiah wasn't reacting to their words. Hey, whatever. Hey, what we have to do is say, Lord, don't let those words get in my brain. Don't let them get in my heart. Lord, those are just words. And what I'm listening to is you and your promises and not their ridicule. Lord, help me keep my eyes on the right thing. So we pray according to God's will. And then um, we pray about specifically about what's causing us anxiety. What, is, what, what does this trigger in me? Does this trigger fight or flight kind of responses? I know what it usually is for me. Um, does this trigger, what is this trigger? Lord, I, this is triggering things for me. Help me be more confident in you than wanting to react. Help me do that in this moment and, and not be poisoned by this. And here's what they did. They prayed and they got back to work. Rarely does God call us just to pray about something and sit there. It's usually pray about it and then get back to work. Get back to building that character. Get back to building that marriage. Get back to building that family. Whatever it is you and God are partnering on, get back to work. You've prayed about it. God's aware of it. And it's going to be okay. It says this in verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. They believed. They believed that God was in this thing, and they just kept working. Any time that you take away from doing the work of building in order to engage some opposition somewhere, you're wasting time. It's time taken away from what you do. That's what Sam Bout was trying to do. He was trying to stall them until they ran out of energy and excitement. He was trying to stall them by talking trash. And as long as we're engaging the trash talkers, we're not building. Pray, let God worry about them. You get back to work. To building your character, to building your marriage, whatever it is you're going to build. And then, so the first one is this whole ridicule that, that can cause fear. And then in verse 7 through 9, we find a more active opposition that was intended to cause fear. Says this, but when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the people of Ashdod, which are all the people groups around the Jews in around Jerusalem, heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. And what does Nehemiah do in verse nine? And we prayed. And then it says, and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Yeah, okay, we're going to do what we need to do. Pray, do what we need to do. Now we're going to go back to work. Now there's an interesting thing in, in, in verse 9 here that's, that's very important. He says, but we prayed. An interesting study in the book of Nehemiah is if you study all of Nehemiah's prayers. He has different prayers in different ways, but he always responds in prayer, which is just the smartest thing we can do, isn't it? If, if our life is a work of partnership between us and God, then why not invite the one who has all the power to make things happen into the situation? Wouldn't that make more sense than responding, reacting, planning, scheming, whatever? And so he prays. But what's interesting about verse 9, it says, and we prayed. What was happening is as Nehemiah is leading the people to rebuild this wall that they could never do on their own, is he's also teaching them how to trust God. All this time, Nehemiah had been the one doing the praying. And now it says, and we prayed. They are learning to pray first. Before the fear got in, before they were discouraged, to pray first. We find this in the New Testament. 
Remember when the, the disciples, a couple of the disciples were arrested for preaching about Jesus and they were threatened that they would be killed just like Jesus was killed and they got back together and they had a prayer meeting. Remember what they prayed for? That God would kill Pilate? No, they didn't pray that. They prayed, God, give us courage and boldness. Not that the situation would get easier, but that God would give them the courage to walk through it. That he would give them the boldness to walk through that. That's what prayer does. Prayer gives you the courage to not react, to, but to walk through that thing. So we find um, prayer, prayer was kind of the first step. But now everything's kind of catching up with them. Because in verse, in verse 6, we heard that they, they built really fast, up to the halfway mark. And, then, uh, and the people worked with all their hearts. But here's what happens. Whenever we start down the path of building something, marriage, character, whatever it is, and we get a good start, there's always a point where it gets difficult because most of us are pretty good starters. I happen to be an excellent starter. I'm just not great at finishing, right? I, I start, I mean, I can start more things in one day than my staff could do in a year. I am a starter, baby. That guy is a starter. Nobody ever got a trophy for starting. The problem is the prize is in the, is in the finishing, and so they'd hit this kind of halfway point. Verse 6 says they're at halfway point. And all of a sudden, they hit a wall. <laughs> Pardon the pun. Um, you got the pun, right? Are we still okay? All right. Um, in, and it says in verse 10, Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. So discouragement sets in. Discouragement is another form of fear. We can't finish, can't get it. Look what they said. The strength of labor is given out. So they're tired, they're fatigued, and now their perspective changes. Whenever we're tired, mentally, physically, our perspective changes. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. We're tired, and there's just too much rubble. We're tired, too much rubble. One of the things when discouragement hits, we need to remember some things. We need to remember that when you're tired, your perspective is not objective. By the way, your perspective is never objective. It's always dependent on your worldview, what you had for dinner last night, and several other things, right? Your perspective is not objective. That's why we need the Bible. It's objective, right? You know what's objective? Even when your perspective is not objective, you know what is objective? God's promises. Think about, think about uh, the spies that went into Israel. Remember the spies went into Israel and sent 12 spies in the promised land? And they could take it, and 10 of them came back. You know what they said? They said, oh, we look like grasshoppers. They're really big. You know what they're looking at? Their perspective. Their perspective was they were really small. The people living there were really big. They looked like grasshoppers on our own eyes is what they said because they were not looking at God's promises. They were, they were looking at the problems. Whenever we begin to look at the problems, forget God's promises. The two that came back, Joshua and Caleb came back and said, God's promised that it'll happen. Doesn't matter how big they are. Doesn't matter how much rubble there is. God said he'll help us build this wall. We're going to build this wall. We oftentimes are like Peter. We get two steps into this new, this new thing of walking on water, this new change we're making, and we start looking, and it says, Peter looked at the wind and the waves. He could see the waves. I don't know how he saw the wind, but he wasn't looking at Jesus. That's the point. And we take our eyes off the one who promised it to us, and we start looking at the problems. We are going to get discouraged. And they found themselves looking at the problem, the rubble, they were tired, and they had their eyes on the wrong things. And discouragement began to set in. If we do that, uh, we will be unstable. Here's what it says in James chapter 
1, verse 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. There is nothing worse than setting out to do what God called you to do, but not asking for God's help. There's nothing worse than trying to change your life but trying to do it on your own. You're stuck in between. You're stuck between what God has called you to and what you can actually achieve. But with God, all things are possible. You can actually build that thing. All right, let's go on. I could tell you're, you're struggling. Okay, good. I really like this stuff. I'm sorry you don't. Uh, by the way, finishing is the point. I read this quote and I just really hated it, so I thought I'd share it with you. Satan delights in unfinished and abandoned spiritual projects. Satan loves when you don't finish that character development. He loves when you don't take that next step in your marriage. Your enemy loves that. So the last one here is actual outright fear, and it begins in verse 11 of chapter 4. And here, I'll just read part of this for you. It says, also our enemy said, uh, so this is the enemies talking before they know it, talking about the Jews before they know it, or see us will be right among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them and came uh, and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I say to some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall, exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. So now here's an interesting thing. So it, the reason it says in here, they told us 10 times over. So what that indicates is that the threats of physical violence were constant. They were just constant, wearing down the Jews, wearing them down. Every time they turned, they had to post another guard there. And it was trying to wear them down. It was constant. But here's where Nehemiah tells us something we can all take with us. And I'll try to finish with this. All right, here it, here it is. He says this, remember, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Who called you to build this wall? Who called you to improve your, your character? Who called you to build a stronger marriage? Who called you? The Lord who is awesome and powerful. That is who is helping this happen. Not your ability, is you and God partnering and you're building this together. Remember that. He is the one who called you to. And he has called you to something really important, really powerful. How do we know that? Listen to this. And he says, great and awesome and fight. Now here's the deal. If you're going to make change in your life and you're going to go to be more like Jesus, you're going to move forward, you're always going to be building and fighting. There's a part of here where it said they had a sword in one hand and, a, and, a, and a, a tool or a trowel in the other hand. We're always to be building our lives and our character and our families and at the same time being willing to fight for it because no progress is made without a battle. You're going to be a builder, you're going to be, bat you're going to be building and battling, and you're going to move forward, but you've got to do both. You've got to fight for it. Now here's where he reminds them why and who it's for. <coughs> Excuse me. He says this, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. This is a great reminder that whatever progress you're trying to make in your spiritual journey, it's not just for you. If ever you're tempted to quit and bail out, let's say you're trying to get sober. Let's say you're trying to overcome an addiction in your life and it's just hard and you just want to go bail. Remember that your addiction isn't just affecting you. It's affecting others around you. And the battle you go through will also affect them. Imagine someday sitting around telling your kids and maybe grandkids how God helped you move beyond 
an addiction to become this incredible responsible person they know and love. He's saying you're fighting not just for your immediate comfort. You're fighting for your children, for your sons, your daughters, your wives, everybody you love. You're fighting for that. And whenever God calls us to anything, whether it's to build a stronger marriage or to build a good family, you are fighting for more than just yourself and your immediate comfort. You are fighting for things that last a very long time. Let's say you're a parent right now and you've got a kid who's taking a bad turn. And... um, And you kind of want to give up. But you're not fighting for your comfort. You were fighting for that child's future. And what was the first thing that Nehemiah taught us to do? Before we go confront them, go after, yell, scream, whatever we're going to do, we first pray and invite God in because God cares about that battle. He cares about the battle for that child's future. He cares. He cares about the future of your marriage. Begin with prayer and then go to war, but in love. Because you love that child. Because you love your spouse that, you, that you're struggling with. It is a powerful thing to fight for someone you love in a loving way. It is a powerful thing. He says, he goes on, fight for your families, wives, homes, etc. And then it says, when our enemies heard this, aware of the plot, they got it frustrated. We all returned to the wall, each doing his own work. So they went back to the wall, but they didn't go back to the wall unaware. They went back to the wall being on guard including not only carrying a, a sword and a, and, a, and a tool, but also there was a trumpeter that walked around with Nehemiah. And if ever they heard the trumpeter to come together and do what? Well, you would assume it is to come together in order to fight. And the implication is that. But in verse 20, here's what it says. Um, whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. And here's what he says. Our God will fight for us. It doesn't just say will fight. It says our God will fight for us. If you go to my office, I have a beautiful office. I have uh, beautiful furniture that someone once saw what I had in there and thought it was hideous and went and got me all new furniture and set it up for me. It was very nice of them and it's gorgeous and I love it. And, but there's also weird stuff in my office. I have weird things in there. I have little symbols all over my office. I have a, I have a set of horse reins used. You can smell them. Um, I have little boats. I have a bunch of different symbols. And you might go, well, what is this stuff? This, many of the things in my office are symbols of reminders of battles. The first boat came from my father-in-law. We were going through a battle, a leadership battle in the church, and he had a bit of wisdom for me, and the boat was part of the illustration. And, and the thing that I learned there was if I will go to battle God's way in prayer first, then there will be a blessing on the other side of it if I don't quit. And I, the, the reins are another leadership thing that I learned in the church, that if I would go to battle and do what God had called me to do and do it prayerfully, that there would be a blessing on the other side of that battle. And there was. And whenever I struggle now with a decision to make or a conflict to resolve or, or whatever it is, I look at those symbols and I am reminded that when I go to battle in prayer the way God wants me to, I have to fight through my own attitudes sometimes. That's the battle sometimes. It's not even against somebody else. Maybe it's my own attitudes, my own thoughts. Whatever I need to do to go through battle, to trust Him, there's always a blessing on the other side of that. So if you're trying to make changes in your life, improve your marriage, family, whatever it is, and you feel like it's just a battle right now, I just want to tell you there's a promise. The promise is of a blessing on the other side. Fight through that battle in prayer. Keep building God will honor that. I promise, but more importantly, he promises. Let's pray. Lord God, today, thank you. Life is not easy. We know that, but it can be meaningful and there can be a blessing if we are doing it your way. 
for people battling right now with their own attitudes or their own addictions or whatever it might be, I pray that you would give them courage, that the power of your Holy Spirit would come and infuse them with tenacity. And Lord God, that you would help them continue to battle forward because there is a blessing awaiting. Lord, for those who are battling for their marriages or for their family or for their kids, I pray that you would allow them just get a glimpse of the blessing on the other side if they'll just continue to pray and get back on the wall and keep building. Lord, for all of us, I pray that we would allow you to take the fear out of us today. Whatever it is we might be a little bit afraid of or a lot afraid of, it is incompatible with faith. And so today we declare our faith in you and we release our fear to you and we trust you. Now meet us. Give us the faith we really need to live that out. In Jesus' name, amen.